Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles then to Exodus chapter 20 as we'll uh, revisit the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, uh, 1 through 17. <clears throat> and following the reading of Scripture, we'll sing together uh, the Gloria Patri printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. As we resume our consideration of the teaching in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, just to remind you, remember the three large sections of the Catechism. The first is the explanation of our sin and misery. The great middle part is how we may be delivered from our sin and misery. And this last section we're working on is how we may show gratitude to the Lord for his deliverance from our sin and misery. And the section that we're a part of, resuming looking at, is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Uh, We considered the purpose of the law and the first commandment previously, and today we come to the second commandment. So keeping it in in mind uh, that it's a, one of the means by which we show our gratitude to the Lord uh, for his mercy. That's the point. So t- what I'll have us do is to look first at the commandment itself, spend some time thinking about that, and then come back to the Heidelberg Catechism and some of the other aspects of application that are brought out in that catechism. <clears throat> I won't really be developing or getting into the elements, the proper elements of worship, I commend to you either our Westminster Confession of Faith or the Shorter Catechism or the Larger Catechism. They give great explanations 
for worship and the different elements of worship and that uh, I commend you to consider those, look at those if you want to dig into that a little bit more. But as we get into this commandment in particular, we are brought uh, squarely together in the arena of what we call worship wars. Uh, There are tremendous differences of opinion on how we should worship and intense um, feeling that's brought into that debate. And as we look at this particular commandment, uh, we that are Reformed Presbyterians, we are in the crosshairs of two different groups uh, generally. The first group is that of Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox who defend the use of images, icons, uh, and pictures in the the use of worship. It's an interesting thing that the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans do not include this commandment in their list of the Ten Commandments. Uh, If they have any uh, indirect reference to it at all, it would be connected with the First Commandment, but... uh, but, uh, but in, in several that I read, it's just not even mentioned at all. Uh, what they do is they divide the 10th commandment on coveting into two and uh, renumber what we call the third commandment, not taking the Lord's name in vain as commandment two, and then renumber the rest of them along the way. <clears throat> the Greek Orthodox, interestingly, they keep this as the second commandment, but they make the argument that it does not forbid the use of images. And I want to, I want to read you a couple sentences, a couple portions from a, a, a writing on that particular uh, issue. They acknowledge that we are idol- idolaters, and, and the author here says, even now we set up idols, uh, wealth, money, power, fame, pleasure, etc., and give them the honor and devotion that the second commandment tells us is due to only to God. Despite what literalists might say, however, this commandment does not forbid the use of icons, pictures, or representations, whether of wood, stone, or whatever. The key point of this commandment is that these objects are not to be objects of the devotion and worship due solely to God. The devotion that we as Orthodox render the icons and other holy objects is a veneration quite apart from that due to God and such was the teaching of the church fathers, especially St. John of Damascus. So he's making a distinction between veneration and worship and not to be taking a cheap shot. I think I would say that's a difference without a distinction. There's really not a difference, but that's their defense on the use of those. So they would look at us as being uh, out of accord with the teaching of the church because we don't use icons and images. But then on the other side, we're in the crosshairs of our fellow evangelicals. Uh, they would look at us as being too strict and legalistic in applying this particular commandment uh, to our worship. They would say that we need to be free to worship however we desire to, 
uh, as long as God doesn't forbid us from doing that. And so we get into the arena of a lot of this discussion of personal preferences. Well, I don't like hymns. I like this kind of music. And we have preferences and opinions. Uh, and they would look at our view, viewpoint as just merely traditional. And they would consider our worship as very boring. Um, so we're kind of getting hit from two directions. And even among those of us who have a common understanding and common commitment to certain principles, we have differences of opinion on exactly how do you apply this command. Uh, Should we sing only psalms? Or are hymns okay if they're teaching biblical truth? Should we have musical instruments? Or should we not have musical instruments? And there are these differences of opinion. And uh, there's one thing I can guarantee you about this sermon. I won't solve those issues. (laughs) You uh, will leave with questions that you maybe don't even know you have. Um, But the thing that I want to accomplish, what what I hope to accomplish with you in considering this commandment today is two things. One, for you to get a sense of what is the burden of the commandment. What's the focus of it? What's our chief goal in the commandment? And then secondly, to just get an appreciation for, for the fact that this is something that we ought to at least seriously consider. Even if we come to some differences of opinion on how to apply it in every case, to at least appreciate the fact that it's, it's worthy of consideration. It's worthy of taking seriously. And so to think about what is the focal point of this commandment? What is the aim of it? We, have, we read the commandment. Uh, what is it that it's primarily focusing on and telling us to do? When we ask the children uh, the question, what does the second commandment teach us? Uh, they answer, to worship God in a proper manner and to avoid idolatry. Thomas Watson, a wonderful Puritan who wrote a, a, one of his great books on the Ten Commandments. He's uh, one of my favorite Puritans. He writes, in the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In this commandment, worshiping the true God in a false manner is forbidden. Uh, G.I. Williamson similarly says, the first commandment informs us to the proper object of worship. The second commandment directs us to the proper manner of worship. And then he adds, our reformed fathers correctly saw that the second commandment safeguards against falling away from the first. We begin to depart from the true God the moment we begin to rely on our own imagination rather than God's revelation. The principle is that we must not worship God in any other way than he has commanded in his word. And that last statement is what we understand or what we call 
by the name, the regulative principle of worship. And um, it's that we worship God only in the way that he's commanded us. And it takes some thought and it takes some consideration and we may not all agree on exactly what he has commanded us, but that's the principle that we are hoping to operate from. Again, not to be too hard on my evangelical friends, their view would not be to, if they have the regular principle at all, they would rephrase it this way, we're free to worship in any way not forbidden by God. And we would say that gives a little bit too much wriggle room. It needs to be, we are to worship the way God has told us to worship. And so as we look at this commandment itself and just try to break it down and think through it, there are four elements in this second commandment. Uh, There's the rule. There's the reason for the rule. There's the uh, warning given. And there's a promise given. The rule is not to make any false image of the true God or to worship and serve these images. So the first commandment told us not to worship a false god. This teaches us not to create any image that we would worship in place of uh, the true God. We are to guard our thinking, uh, to guard our practice, and to let it be governed by the way God has revealed himself in his word and in his son. That needs to dominate our thinking. It's the essence of unbelief, really, to create a God of our own imagination. If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Here we have a presentation of men, even though they know God, They create uh, an image of God according to their own imagination. So in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Kevin DeYoung, in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, has a couple of helpful thoughts in us thinking about this. Why is it that God has such an aversion to any kind of visible representation of himself? Well, one reason is that he's a spirit. Uh, John 4, 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
we ask the children, uh, what is God? And their answer, God is a spirit and has not a body like men. God is, is not physical. He can't be seen. He, you can't make an image of him. And if you make an image of him, you have lost God in his essential character as a, a glorious spirit. And so that would be one reason. Another reason is that God is absolutely free. And one of the problems with creating an idol is that we uh, men tend to think they have the control and authority over that idol. They can take it and carry it around wherever they want to. They put it on a shelf. They pray to it. They may make offerings to it. But they're the ones in control of it. Even the Israelites um, had trouble at times with uh, thoughts like this. They would take the Ark of the Covenant into battle thinking that, well, we have God with us and he's going to do what we want him to do, even though he told them, I don't want you to go into battle. And the freedom of Almighty God demands he can't be confined to a physical peace. He's beyond that. Uh, A third item is that he's majestic. His glory is so great, it can't be captured in anything physical. We're obscuring it instead of appreciating the majestic glory of our God. And uh, a final thought is the reason God prohibits images is because God, though they originate in men, and God himself defines his mediators and his, the revelation of himself. Uh, he is the one that gave us priests and prophets and kings in anticipation of the prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah. He is the one that reveals his character and what he wants you to know of his character in his word. It's he that revealed the glory of his nature in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Colossians 1.15 uses the very word image. Uh, in that verse, Paul says, he, Christ, is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Christ is the, the picture, the revelation of the glory of God. And we are not to create gods of our own imagination. And so the, the, the rule is you shall not make to yourself any graven image <clears throat> or bow down and worship and serve them. Well, why? We've talked a little bit about why, but <clears throat> why in the second commandment? It said, he says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, you and I tend to think of jealousy often in its petty, irrational sense, and we do see that exhibited in people uh, from time to time, and um, they're, they're, they're kind of um, just superficially flying off the handle for this, that, or the other reason. But there's a very proper and appropriate and uh, holy and godly jealousy. Uh, jealousy in its proper sense is the 
the desire to guard a relationship that you don't want anything or anybody to interfere with. It's very appropriate for a husband or a wife to be jealous of their relationship and desire not to have anything interfere with that relationship, to guard and protect that, just as you would guard and protect also your children, to be jealous that, that no one harmed them. Well, God is saying, I am a jealous God. I am jealous for my honor, and I am jealous for my people. And I don't want anything to interfere with my honor and my relationship with my people. And these false gods uh, tend to do that. God is protecting his name and his people. And part of the calling of this commandment is that you and I have as holy a jealousy for the honor of God as he does for himself. We need to be jealous for the honor of God and our relationship with him. And let nothing get in the way of that. The third part of the commandment is the warning that God will judge those who dishonor him. He visits the iniquity on the generations to come of those that hate me. The um, worship wars, sometimes we handle them poorly, but it's not unimportant to think about how should we worship. It's not an indifferent matter. It's not a flippant matter. We can't just say, well, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do. No, there's serious issues that we need to reflect on and think about and uh, do so in our interactions with our fellow believers without being harsh and mean-spirited and, and um, uh, overly cruel to them or in any sense like that. But at the same time, they're important discussions because God will judge those who do not honor him. So it's important for us to think about even if we end up with some differences on how we apply it. The fourth element is the promise that God will show mercy to those who honor him. He'll show mercy to generations of those that love me and keep my commandments. The wonderful blessedness of the mercy of God. I mentioned Thomas Watson earlier. Um, He has a section on the mercy of God at this point in his commentary and his discussion of the second commandment that is just amazingly wonderful. If you ever get a chance to get a hold of Thomas Watson's book on the Ten Commandments, it will be worthy of every ounce of effort to read it. But you can jump ahead to the second commandment and read this section. I may come back and do a sermon on that because it's so worthwhile. Uh, to think about. But it's the second commandment, the, the, the rule and the reason, the warning, but then the promise encourages us to take what that commandment is telling us seriously and try to think it through. What is it that God commands us to do in worship? Uh, some of the elements of worship, prayer, he commands us to pray. Uh, He commands for the 
teaching and preaching of the word of God. Uh, He commands us to give glory and honor to him, uh, singing, worshiping him in song, spiritual song, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. That's commanded in the scriptures. And you can continue to pursue that line of thinking. As you read through the scriptures and the Old and New Testaments, particularly the New Testament, as there's a transition from Old Covenant worship into New Covenant worship. Uh, so we, if we come back to the Hutterberg Catechism questions, and I want to bring up a couple issues that are <coughs> part of our discussion and thinking about, and I, I use this as sort of an illustration of how we seriously think through things that you might not think through otherwise. Uh, The question number six, obviously, was simply what is required in the second commandment, which we've talked about. We are to worship him not in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Uh, And um, question 97 is bringing up another issue. Uh, must we then not make any image at all? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forget, forbids to make or have any resemblance of them in, in order to, <coughs> either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. So one of the questions that comes up is, is beauty, art, painting, sculpture, Uh, Is beauty, uh, can that be a part of our life? Or does the second commandment forbid that? And in that one part of the answer, creatures can be represented. Um, The second commandment is governing our worship. uh, And and any, any idolatry even done outside this place of worship. But at the same time, it's not saying that art and beauty cannot be a part of our life. A.W. <clears throat> Pink, who's fairly strict in many ways, uh, he has this to say, it is a manifest straining of this precept to make it condemn all statuary and paintings. It is not the ingenuity of making, but the stupidity and the worshiping of them which is condemned. And so, is it okay to have a beautiful building or a pleasant place to, to worship in? Um, there are those who, wrestling with this commandment, think, well, should we have something like flowers here? Do that, is that a temptation to idolatry? And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. No, it's thoughtful. You might say, yeah, I think it's okay. It's just a beautifying. It's just a, a beautiful thing. <clears throat> we might appreciate the beautiful facility that we have, but if we ever worship this building, then we're idolaters. We can thank God for the benefits and the blessings we have, but we wrestle through this commandment in thinking, how do we honor God most faithfully uh, in the place he's given, in the people that he's given put together? Uh, We do need to be careful in our comparisons with Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship, the Old Covenant people of God needed the extra ornamentation, the extra ceremonies that they went through because Christ hadn't come, but Christ is here. And we don't need all of those. Calvin, 
he said that the only ornamentation, the only uh, physical things he wanted in the place of worship was those who, that God ordained, which was baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's worthy to think about. Uh, and so there are questions that we, we may differ in application, but at least we need to take seriously the commandment and reflect on that. Another question that comes up, <clears throat> it's, not in these, um, it's not in these questions, but it's uh, are representations of Jesus valid? Not so much in here, but in educational materials. And again, you might say, well, of course that's okay. But we need to take the command seriously. Ryan and I, Ryan and I had a discussion recently about this. As he's getting ready for his ordination exam, he may be asked that question. Uh, is it permissible? Well, of course, Jesus was a man. And uh, we don't want to pretend that he what, didn't have a real human body. Uh, there, uh, I don't know whether any of you remember this. Uh, uh, the uh, the good news, uh, little New Testaments and Bibles, and I think they came out in the sixties and seventies. <clears throat> I see a few nods, and if you remember, they they did have pictures in there. They were weren't stick figures exactly, but they were drawings without faces. Well, that's something that you kind of just reflect on: is uh, what do we do? The um, the only thing we can, we don't know what Jesus really looked like physically. The only thing we, we can say absolutely, <clears throat> categorically, is that he was not a white European male. Maybe he looked similar to people of the Middle East look today. But I would be of the opinion, because he's a man, uh, it's legitimate in educational materials to have a picture. But not everybody would agree. Some would take quite issue with me. But it's important for us to think about. And considering this commandment, hopefully is just, well, we think about these things. We take it seriously. The, The final thing in question 98 is, in question 98, is really an answer to a um, something that was affirmed in the time of the Reformation. It's, uh, may not pictures be tolerated in churches as books for the laity? And this was something that um, uh, people were, some people were adamant about in that day. Well, we need, we can't get rid of images. We can't lose the, um, the, the, these portraits and so forth because they are the books for the laity. They can't read They can't understand the faith without them. And the answer of the reformers was the answer of Zacharias or Sinus. No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God who will have his people taught not by images, but by the lively preaching of his word. So the answer of the reformers to, well, we need this as a book for the laity. They said, no, the only book we need for the laity is the preaching of the word of God. We need to teach them God's truth. We need to give them God's word. It's as Paul would say in Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. <clears throat> we don't need these extra aids. We need 
the word of God faithfully taught and preached. And um, from Kevin DeYoung, a couple concluding thoughts here. Our goal in worship, therefore, is not to entertain or impress the senses, but to edify the people by educating them in the word of God. We cannot capitulate to the contemporary ethos that laments short attention spans. We must resist the urge to get with the spirit of the age and to feed our people with more than a steady diet of video clips and sermonettes. That's our goal, is to feed God's people and to worship God in a manner that honors him. Well, this is a big topic, and we've only touched on some of it, perhaps giving you more questions than answers. But I want to summarize and give you a few principles that I think we glean from this commandment to guide us in our overall thinking about our worship. The first is that God must be the center of our worship. We, God has to be the central place. Not what you get out of it, though, Lord willing, you get a lot out of it, but it's not what you get out of it that's important. <clears throat> it's what you put into it. It's who you focus on. It's what attention you give. God must be the center of our worship. Uh, We have to focus our attention upon him. And as the God who is holy and righteous, we, a second thing is we need to worship him with reverence and awe. Uh, We need to humble ourselves before him. And I'm not accusing other believers who worship differently of not doing that. But it's something we need to conscientiously think about. Who gets the glory? Who is it that's the focus of attention? It needs to be God. We need to give him reverence and awe. And we have to worship him, uh, not according to the imaginations of men, but as he has revealed himself in his word. Is that what governs our thinking? Is that what governs our worship? It's an important thing that we need to Make a priority. That God alone, the the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealing his glory in the Son, would be the one who governs our worship and guards our thoughts and our affections. May we be as jealous for the glory of God as he is, and may we be the true worshipers and experience the blessedness of the promise of God's mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the goodness of you and your word. Thank you for these commands that even as we wrestle with them and desire to honor you in it, show our thankfulness to you. Help us as we wrestle with uh, different opinions, different aspects of this very challenging topic that we might give you the honor week by week. Uh, and the glory you are worthy of. And uh, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.